Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where China analyst and author Mark O'Neill joins me to talk about his latest book on the long and at times complicated relationship between Jewish communities and China that stretches from the Tang Dynasty to the present day. It's the story of the Sassoons, the Kadoris, and Silas Hardoon, among others. During the Second World War, tens of thousands of European Jews were able to escape the Holocaust and find refuge in Shanghai. In 1948, the State of Israel was declared, but Chairman Mao Zedong refused to have any relations. But since 1979, the economic relationship has become very important to both countries. Mark O'Neill is the author of Israel and China, From the Tang Dynasty, to Silicon Wadi. Well, I think it began when I was living in Shanghai between 2003 to, to 2006. And when you live in Shanghai, you cannot escape the great Jewish imprint on the city uh, in terms of uh, these very elegant buildings which were built there and are still there. You find there was a large Jewish community there before 1949. You find there were seven synagogues there. You find that 30,000 Jewish people took refuge in, in Shanghai uh, during the war. And there's a big museum that commemorates this. So I met many people who'd come from America, from Israel, from Poland, and their fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers had been in Shanghai during the war and had taken refuge and then after the war had gone elsewhere. And now, of course, there's a large Jewish community there, as there is a large expat community uh, doing business. So you have a very strong sense of the, the ties between Jewish people and uh, China. In Hong Kong, I had the time to write a book about this, and I discovered that the Jewish people first came to China in the Tang Dynasty. So when was the Tang Dynasty? It was the, the 7th to the 9th century AD, and it was the time when China was the most advanced and most developed country in the world. So thousands of foreigners came to China to live, just like they do now, because there were great business opportunities, and the Jewish people were among them. So they settled in, in Chang'an and Luoyang, and especially in this city Kaifeng in Henan province. And there became a settled Jewish community there. But the problem was that the, the Chinese were too good to them. They gave them the rights of Chinese. They could own land. They could join the government. They could be teachers. They could be soldiers. They could go into business. They didn't face the restrictions that they did in countries in Europe or in Russia. So what happened was they assimilated. I mean, this is quite normal. Some married Chinese women. They would dress in Chinese clothes. They would speak Mandarin rather than Hebrew, which just became religious language. So in the course of time, and with the fact they were cut off from the Jews in other parts of the world, they lost most of their Jewish nature. So most of the Jews in China now are the Jews who've come since 1978 since the Deng Xiaoping open-door policy. But I discovered that after the Opium War, a large number of Jews moved to China with the foreign powers, especially Shanghai and Harbin. And they, they lived there for 100 years. And their story is quite remarkable. And they were different to the other expats because they lived there. The other expats came for a five-year, ten-year assignment, you know, did their job, made their money and went back to their home countries. But they, the Jews didn't. They settled there. And this meant that they were able to do much more and invest there and build businesses, build a lot of properties, build up institutions in Shanghai and Harbin for their own 
communities and established a very vibrant Jewish life. So that existed for a hundred years until World War II and then the uh, civil war in China and then the communists taking power in 1949 and then most of the Jewish people left. So that brought that century to an end. So we have the Tang Dynasty, then we have this hundred years of the Harbin in Shanghai, and then we have this extremely dramatic period in the war when, when as I say, 30,000 Jews took refuge in, in Shanghai. Yes, I mean, what was happening in Europe at that time was horrific. Particularly in the Second World War, you would have had this exodus to safe havens like Shanghai. But after the Japanese occupation of Shanghai, what happens to Jewish communities then? Well, now, first we should say, how is it that the Jews managed to get from Germany, Austria, the Baltic states, to China? I mean, that's an extraordinary journey. How did they get the visas to come? So my book describes uh, three of these very remarkable diplomats, one Chinese, one Japanese, one from Manzhou Guo, and they gave thousands of visas to Jewish people in order to enable them to escape the Holocaust and come here, and they did it against the orders of their government. So those three individuals are quite extraordinary. And this was a time when nearly all the countries in the world were closing the doors. They didn't want Jewish refugees to come. Really? So uh, the... the behavior- Why was that? Well, I think it's just, like, it's just like now. I mean, most countries are prepared to accept small amounts of political refugees because they consider we can absorb them easily, we can look after them easily. But no country wants to have hundreds of thousands of foreign people arriving with no money, with no assets, just arriving suddenly on their shores. Now, Angela Merkel in Germany was an exception. I mean, one million Syrians in one year, and that's extraordinary. But mostly countries do, do not want that. So the treatment of the Jews at that time was not actually that different to, to what is happening now with migrants from Africa or Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. But it's quite amazing that this number were able to arrive in Shanghai. And then you say, well, what happens? The Japanese take over the whole of Shanghai, so all the Jews in Shanghai become under their control. And 1942, the Gestapo chief in Tokyo went to Shanghai and said, you've got 30,000 Jews here, now you must implement the final solution. And he gave them three ways to do it, ways to eliminate the Jewish people quickly. But the Japanese military authorities declined to follow his request, and they did set up a separate area in Shanghai, which some call a ghetto, and the Jews who were stateless were moved to this ghetto in Shanghai. But it was not like a ghetto in Poland or Eastern Europe. I mean, they were not killed. They had to live there. Conditions were very difficult, much overcrowding. It was very hard to find work. But they were not persecuted. They were not killed. But the stress must have been awful, because for many of these people, they'd already escaped an awful situation with the chance of being exterminated. They'd travelled, they're now in Shanghai, and they're having to live with that stress again. The Jews that lived in the British, American or French concessions had a reasonable life in the sense that they had a house, they had probably had servants, the, many of them had work. They were able to live a relatively normal life. But the ones that had arrived later that didn't have assets 
and especially those that were forced to move to this segregated area. Yes, you're right, there was great overcrowding. It was very hard to find work. Things were in shortage. But the situation is completely different to that in Europe because the local Chinese people did not turn against them. Despite the shortage of everything, the shortage of space, the shortage of food, the shortage of water, the Chinese residents themselves, often refugees from other parts of China, did not turn against them, and the two lived quite amicably during the war. And, of course, some people died of illnesses, lack of nutrition and so forth, but they didn't die because of the, the Japanese government making this happen. So th- this, is, this is also an extraordinary event, given that Japan was an ally of Nazi Germany at that time. So that's life in wartime Shanghai. But as you describe, you have these different periods from the Tang Dynasty onwards where Jewish communities come to China. Then what happens so in more recent decades? Well, the, the history since 1978 has been quite similar to that of the foreign communities that have moved to Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing. So Jewish people have moved there and set up businesses on their own or working for big companies, and they have gradually re-established Jewish communities and Jewish worship, as they do in other cities in the world. But the PRC government does not recognize Judaism as an official religion. So the seven synagogues in, in Shanghai that exist in the 30s, there are only two that still exist today as buildings, separate buildings. And the Jewish community in Shanghai would love to get them back. But the government is not giving these buildings back. It allows the community to use them occasionally for weddings or for special Jewish festivals. They have a good, very good relationship with the Jewish community. There's no conflict with them. But they won't give them back. And I think the reason is that pre-49, so many foreign religious institutions had assets in China. They had churches, they had schools, they had orphanages, they had old people's homes, they had houses belonging to priests or ministers. So if China gives back these synagogues, then the Methodists, the Catholics, the Baha'is, everyone else will say, well, we want our assets back. So I think the view of the PRC government is we'll allow you to use them occasionally. We recognize that these buildings have a connection to you, but we remain the, the owners of them. So in mainland China, the religious ceremonies are not held in a synagogue as they are in Hong Kong or in other cities. They're held in buildings, apartment buildings or in offices. Uh, that's how it works. And what's the modern trade these days? Um, you know, in your book, you say it starts off with, you, you know, Tang Dynasty right, right back in sort of 8th, 9th century AD. And then, you know, later on, you would have had opium, you'd have had tea going one direction, linen going another. But modern day, what would you have said are uh, perhaps key trades that the Jewish communities are trading out of Shanghai? Uh, or does it still apply in a sort of a global business environment? Well, in in Shanghai, I met many uh, Jewish entrepreneurs, and I asked them this question, and one of them took me to his uh, warehouse. It extended in every direction, as far as you could see. (laughs) Every kind of goods was available. He said, I trade in all of these. He said, do you want to make some money? He said, "Uh, I suggest you invest in pet products. So he took me to one corner of his (laughs) warehouse, 
and here was pet foods, pet toys, pet clothes, anything to do with animals. Why did, why did he suggest you invest? Is it a burgeoning business in, in China? Well, no, he made the, he ah, sourced the products here and he sold them to pet lovers in America and Europe because he said that when uh, a pet lover goes to buy a product, they don't look at the price. No. They see the, 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 <laughs> the coat or the boot or the, or the pet food and they think of the pleasure it will bring to their beloved animal and they pay for it. If they go to buy a vegetable or a piece of meat, they will argue with the vendor to try and bring the price down. But he said they won't do this with, with, okay. with, with pet products. Wise man. So, as usual, he's well ahead of the curve. And then another of his products was dentures, because he explained that when you have a denture made, every person has a different mouth. You can't make dentures with a machine. So he came originally from Paris, so the, the, the patient would come to the dentist on a Thursday morning and put the plastic mould in his mouth. The plastic mould would then go to DHL, it would fly to Pudong Airport, <laughs> it would then go to a, um, a man in a Pudong uh, factory who would make the denture, and then on Monday it would go back to DHL and fly back to Paris. And on Tuesday morning, the patient would go back to the surgery in Paris and get, get his new dentures. I mean, now we're all familiar with globalization, but at that time when he explained, I, I was quite stunned by that, by um, using this global network of DHL airplanes. He could produce these dentures. I always find it fascinating with these kind of entrepreneurs, just how they pick a product. So this man was very unusual because he had so many different products. Now, many of the other Jewish people I met there had a more normal occupation. So they would work for an American or European bank or a law firm or textile firm, and they worked as employee of these companies. So they weren't quite as entrepreneurial as this individual. Of course, there are many Israelis there, and Israel, as we know, is high-tech startup nation. So many of them are involved in high-tech startup companies. It was also traditionally diamonds. Is that still the case? Oh, yes. Oh, indeed. As you know, Tel Aviv, Antwerp, New York are the three global centers of the diamond business. And uh, a Jewish entrepreneur in China set up the Shanghai Diamond Exchange, which is alive and flourishing. So many Israelis are working there. And this, of course, is an extremely booming industry now because there are thousands of very wealthy Chinese and they want to have products like diamonds. I mean, this is a very, very good asset to have. One final thing I want to say on the economy is that the trade between Israel and China previously was not significant. But this has completely changed in the last five years. And Chinese companies have gone to Israel and are building major infrastructure projects, ports, railways, roads. They're selling buses, they're selling trains. And now they're investing in Israeli startups. So according to the Jerusalem Post in January, China will overtake the US in about three years as the biggest foreign investor in Israel. I mean, this is really hard to believe because Chinese have enormous amounts of surplus capital. They're looking for a good place to invest it. And in Israel, there are thousands of startups. So you pick the 20 you look consider the most promising. 
maybe 18 of them will fail, but one of them or two of them will succeed. They will list NASDAQ, they will list maybe in Hong Kong, they'll list maybe in Tel Aviv Stock Exchange, and you will make a 1,000% return on your money. So this is now what Chinese investors are doing in Israel. Going right back to the Tang Dynasty, where would the Jews have been coming from that migrated to China, and would they have been doing trade with China when they arrived? Yeah, they came from Iraq, so they would be sourcing products from China and selling them to Iraq and countries on the, on the Silk Road. So that was the first group. But as I say, the community settled here, so trading continued. But other Jewish people, they took up different professions. Some of them joined the Chinese government. Some became farmers. Some became bankers. They had a whole range of, of careers because they decided to settle in China. So it didn't depend on their having trade with foreign countries. So you go in your book, Israel and China, from the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi. You go right from those early Tang traders right through to these startups in Israel. So you look at the economic side and you also look at some of the key Jewish families and their histories. Yes, of course, in a book, you want to write about individuals because I think it's easier for people to grasp. And really, there are so many individuals that you can choose from, and they all have extraordinary lives. Can you give me an example of some of these key Jewish dynasties that we also would apply to Hong Kong history? One, of course, is the Sassoon family. Another is the Silas Hadoon, whom we, he spoke about before. And, of course, another is the Kaduri family, because they are very famous in Hong Kong. They're very well established here. They own the Palincia Hotel. They own China Light and Power. And they arrived in Shanghai and Hong Kong in the 1880s and there were two brothers one was sent here and one was sent in Shanghai and so their connection with China is now 140 years and their main businesses have been here so that gives them a profile quite different to the other foreigners who come here do business but their main capital and their main interest remains in their home country but the Kadoris, no. The Kadoris went to Shanghai, lived there. They lived here in Hong Kong, and their businesses and their investments are in these places. What other key businesses have there been between Jewish communities and China? Well, when the, the communists took power in 1949, uh, Chairman Mao followed a revolutionary agenda. So he supported revolutions around the world. He supported the Arab cause. So there was no relations with Israel, there was no contact with Israel at all, there was no movement of people or goods or anything. And this didn't change until February 1979. And what happened was that China invaded Vietnam and was heavily defeated. Thousands of Chinese soldiers were killed. And the PLA realized that... So the People's Liberation Army. ...realized that their weapons and their, their techniques and their machinery were so backward and out of date. So they needed to upgrade them dramatically. But where do they go? They can't get it from the US and the, the NATO allies. They can't go to the Soviet Union. So where can they get the modern weapons? So they go to Israel. So this Jewish entrepreneur called Shaul Eisenberg, he was the middleman. He arranged this first group of Israeli military and industrial people to come on a plane in February 1979. And it was absolutely top secret. So they stayed in a hotel near the Beijing airport, and they all wanted to go to the friendship store to buy products. So it was open for them at three in the morning, 
so they could go and buy products and then get back into the hotel so no one would see them. So no diplomats would see them and no journalists would see them because it had to be absolutely top secret because officially China was still an ally of the Arab countries then. So for a period, Israel became the biggest supplier of arms to China. So that's how the relations developed between Israel and China initially. And this man, Shaul Eisenberg, is a really extraordinary character. He was very much a one-man band. He had his own company, but he decided everything. And he himself was the son of a Polish family born in Munich. And he escaped the Holocaust in 1938, and he spent the war in Shanghai and Japan. So he had a great sentiment, very favorable sentiment to both these countries. I met him in the 1990s. He lived most of the time in an apartment in the Lido Hotel. He had an office there. In which city? In Beijing. In Beijing. And he traded all kinds of goods between Israel and China, and it was all secretive. So when I was there, he died. So I went to his office on the day of the funeral, and the wreaths there were astonishing. All the major Chinese arms producers, the Minister of Defense, many other very high-level Chinese state institutions had sent wreaths. So only then did I realize the extent of what this man had done. Because as I say, he was very secretive. He would never talk about his businesses. He always operated in the shadows. So when you talked to him, what sort of character was he and what did you talk about? I mean, he, obviously you weren't talking about his, his actual products then. Well, he said, I'm not going to tell you anything about my businesses because that, that was his advantage. He was doing things that other people weren't doing. So, no, what he talked about in the interview was uh, his uh, war experience and how he came from Europe to Shanghai. He lived in Shanghai for three years in the war and then he moved to Japan and he married a lady who's half Japanese, half Austrian. So he then spent years in Japan. And after the war... He stayed in Japan and started trading with Japan and then also with South Korea. So he also made a fortune because it was the time of the Korean War. He was at the front end and no one else was doing this, this kind of business. So this man was the pioneer of trade between Israel and China at a time when there was no diplomatic relations. As an arms dealer? Well, I think not only arms. I think he would supply, I think, fertilizers was another thing he did because you know, Israel's a big producer of chemical fertilizer. And then slightly later on in the story, Israel becomes a major arms supplier to Taiwan. And I learned in the research of this book that the Taiwan nuclear industry is the result of Israeli help. And one particular man, he went to Taiwan and he helped them found their nuclear industry. He was a close friend of President Chiang Kai-shek and his son, Jiang Jingguo. And after China developed its nuclear weapons in 1964, Chiang Kai-shek wanted Taiwan to have them too. So Taiwan was on this path, helped by the assistance this man provided. But within the Taiwan military, there were many spies, American spies, and one of them, who was a Taiwanese individual, he saw that Taiwan was on the path to having nuclear weapons. And he decided that this was too dangerous for his country. So he leaked all the information to Washington. And Washington found out just in time. So they put enormous pressure on Chiang Kai-shek and he had to abandon the program. And this individual had to be spirited out by secret CIA flight 
and he lives in Idaho now, and he's just written a book, actually, to explain what he did. So his view is the political leaders of Taiwan were not trustworthy enough. If they had a nuclear bomb, they might use it. Now, the view of most people in Taiwan, of course, is the reverse. This man is a traitor. He was a senior official in the nuclear sector in Taiwan. He was privy to a lot of secrets. Nuclear weapons could be seen as critical to maintaining Taiwan's safety from communist China. But he leaked them, and as a result, they have not developed these weapons. But this is only possible because of the help provided by this high-level Israeli official. Interesting. So, um, yes, this really does... uh Take it in all your book goes in all sorts of different directions. I'm talking with Mark O'Neill, China analyst and author of Israel and China from the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi. So you really do go from the seventh century right up until up to date. So I mean in terms of as you say, Mao um, didn't identify with Israeli, I identified with Arab countries. Um, but uh, what would you say is the relationship now, most definite economic one? Yeah, I mean, economic side, trade side, commercial side is booming. China's a big investor in Israel. Thousands of Chinese tourists go to Israel for holidays. There's increasing exchanges of students also. But I think the Israelis uh, are somewhat disappointed that China has not used its enormous diplomatic weight to help broker a peace agreement. China doesn't seem to be interested in that. As you know, China has very close relations with Syria, with Iran, with Yemen. It sells arms to these countries who are the adamant enemies of Israel. Uh, Iran has said it's going to eliminate Israel. So it seems that China's interests are economic. So they want to do trade and investment with Israel, but they want to do trade and investment with all the other countries in the Middle East too. So they don't want to, to prejudice this by investing too much time and resources to try to broker a Middle East peace deal. Now, as you know, China is a member of the UN Security Council. She has very close relations with many Middle Eastern countries, much better than those of the United States or some European countries. Obviously, there are many players involved in this. Israel's neighbors, Saudi Arabia, Palestinians. I mean, it's a very complicated problem, and no one has been able to find a solution since 1948, so it's not an easy matter. But I think many Israelis would, would hope that since China is now so heavily involved in Israel, Uh, she might find it in her interest to use her considerable diplomatic and financial muscle to try to bring about a peace agreement. But But isn't, yeah, I I was going to say, isn't China interested a little bit in in being this international statesman? Well, its official remarks are that there should be a two-state solution, we support legitimate rights of the Palestinians, uh, and so on. Um, But she doesn't invest uh, time and uh, energy to bring this about. And again, it's, this is a very hard thing, and Beijing may well have decided that there's no point to invest all this time and energy in something that cannot be achieved. I mean, that's quite a, that could be a very understandable conclusion. But from the Israeli perspective, previously we had no relations with China, nothing. But now we have very close relations with China. So if only... China and the European powers and the US could work together and broker a solution, this would be, of course, something very much to be desired. My thanks to Mark O'Neill, the author of Israel and China, From the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi. 
On Hong Kong Heritage next week, I talk with former British Army officer and historical biographer Nigel Collette about the shooting death of a young Scottish bisexual policeman in Hong Kong in 1980. John McLennan was found dead on the floor of his flat with five gunshot wounds. McLennan was bisexual and not a paedophile, says Nigel Collette. But what the author did unearth was a paedophilia scandal that involved some of Hong Kong's highest officials. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.